This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So a hen and a pig saw a church sign, and it was announcing this sermon that was coming up. And the sermon said, what can we do to help the poor? The hen then suggested, hey, why don't we feed them uh, bacon and eggs? And the pig thought about it and then replied, well, there's there's one thing wrong with your idea. For you, it just requires a contribution. uh, But for me, it requires total commitment. Our story today, our text today, is really similar to this idea of commitment, right? This idea that in order to give what needs to be given, there's a lot that has to be given up. This this text is something that we know, is something that we're familiar with uh, as we think about how Jesus was so committed to the Father and so committed to us that, that he truly died and he was buried. And that's really the point of our text today, that Jesus really experienced death. When you think about everything that John, the the author of this gospel, focuses on, what he emphasizes, it's interesting how much he focuses on this at the end of his uh, gospel letter. What is he most concerned about here? John is concerned that you, that I, know that he truly died. And he he wants us to understand why that should matter. Right now, it might seem like, well, no big deal. I've heard this. I know this. Jesus died. Keep moving. We often do that when we come to Good Friday service. This text that we're looking at is often read on Good Friday. And usually, we go through Good Friday with the expectation that we're going to eventually get to Sunday. How many times do we rightfully say, Sunday's coming? So we're just waiting and anticipating. But that was not necessarily where people were when Jesus died, they were there focusing, thinking, living in the truth of Jesus's death and what that meant for them. And we should be thinking about what it means to us and why it matters. So as we read through John, we're going to read chapter 19, verses 31 through 42. And we're going to think about what it meant for him to not just give a contribution like our earlier silly story was, but what it meant for him to give full commitment what that means to us, and why it should matter to us. John 19, beginning at first, verse 31. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says, they will look at the one they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, 
asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They took Jesus' body and wrapped him in linen cloths with the fragrant spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was placed in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So much to walk through here, and it's something, again, that can be so quickly glanced over. We can gloss over it. Uh, but I think that there's some things we need to focus on because John thought it was necessary to include it. So we should really dig in. Uh, first of all, again, remember, John's primary concern here uh, is to demonstrate to you and I that Jesus of Nazareth really died and was truly buried. We'll talk about in a minute why he focuses so much on that. There's some specific reasons, some things that they were facing during the time that made that really important. But there are reasons it should be important to us even today uh, as well. So if we, when we, by beginning this, let's look at the, the verse we ended on last week. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, if we were to define death by just purely medical terms, we would describe it in the way that Webster describes it is the irreversible cessation of all vital functions, especially as indicated by permanent stoppage of the heart, respiration, and brain activity. Very specific, very inclusive, very exhaustive, right? But notice that even the biblical concept of death here is even more complex. It includes everything we just stated, but it demands even more. When Jesus died, he bowed his head. His body gave out. His heart stopped beating. His lungs stopped processing air. The synapses in between his axons and dendrites in his brain stopped firing. But we're also told that he gave up his spirit. We're told that, that, he, that we're reminded that we as humans are not merely physical beings. All of the physical functionality had ceased, but he also gave up his spirit. We're not just made up of flesh and blood. We're made up of a soul or a spirit. There, there is a material aspect to our being. Notice that uh, Jesus was, was truly human here. He had a very human body and this, and this soul as well. When he died, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus of Nazareth experienced death in full. And John presents witnesses to prove it. Actually, he gives us four. Four witnesses to demonstrate that Jesus indeed died, uh, did indeed die. And we're going to talk about again why he feels the need to prove that he really died. So the first witnesses we see, verses 31 through 34, the Roman executioners. These Roman executioners, we see in these first three verses of this text, John is showing the Romans, uh, these Roman executioners as witnesses to the death of Christ. Notice they were, they were certain that Jesus had died. They knew that he had died. We should remember these soldiers were very familiar with death. If there was anybody who could recognize death, it would have been a Roman soldier. It was nothing new to them. They were professionals in this field. 
It's not hard to see why John brings them up as witnesses to the death of Christ. They can verify with no real question, no equivocation, that someone is truly dead. Verse 31, uh, since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross. What does this mean here? Because when you look at verse, when you look at this, this, this verse 31, what does it mean for preparation day? When it says this was preparation day, we're supposed to understand that it was a Friday. For, for a Jewish audience uh, who would be listening to this, they would know right away this was talking about a Friday, the day before the Jewish Sabbath. In the Old Covenant, the day of the Sabbath was Saturday. So the day of preparation was the day before the Sabbath. That was the way that uh, many times, the way they would measure time, it would begin at sundown on what we call Friday night. It was common for the Jews to refer to Friday as preparation day, the day of preparation. On Fridays, final preparations were made for the proper observance of the Sabbath. And, and so uh, when he says this was the day of pres- uh, a preparation, it's telling you Passover was coming. This was uh, and not only Passover, but the Sabbath was coming. It was a special Sabbath because it was during Passover. So it would have been a lot of preparation. It would have been a lot of busyness. And they would not have wanted to do much else uh, in addition to that. That's why we're also told a little bit later it was a special day. Some versions say it was a high day. Why was that day so high? Because Passover was also happening. And so they also knew uh, what the law required of them right? Deuteronomy 21, 22 says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord, your God is giving you for an inheritance. This was the law that motivated the Jewish authorities uh, to go to Pilate and to request that the three that were crucified would have their legs broken and their bodies removed from the crosses and buried. Now, if you, if you were to imagine what a cross would have looked like, specifically under this Roman execution style, those crosses, there would be a wedge under the cross where the, where, where, that would be right under, it would be on the cross and right under the feet of the one that was being crucified. And so they've been nailed to this cross. Their feet have been nailed to it so that the crucified would have something to push up against while they're on the cross. So there's this, this wooden little kind of plank underneath their feet and they can kind of push up once in a while just to relieve the pressure from their arms and from their chest and they can breathe. You're on that cross so long, your body weight starts to weigh on you. Those lungs start to collapse. So they would use the little strength they had in their legs just to push up ever so much, just to momentarily relieve some of the pressure that was there. Now, this was not an act of kindness. This wasn't something that they were doing just to try to make it easier on the crucified. This was meant to prolong the life of the crucified so that really it would make suffering increased. The goal was to make the most uh, callous ways of suffering as a way of a deterrent in many ways so that people would never think about crossing the Roman government. And so uh, you've got this cross here, and the Roman custom would be to leave the criminal on that cross after death as a warning to everybody that passed by. And so you would see them lasting as long as possible so that that memory would be burned into the minds of all the passerbys that would go. So now you've got uh, the, 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 the Jews who are there. They want this process expedited. 
They don't want Jesus on the cross super, super long because they want to hurry up, get him buried so that they can go and have their wonderful worship service. So, so they're like, hey, can you just go break? We want to see those legs broken so that he can hurry up and die quickly so that we can go about our, our worship service later. And so here they're wanting it uh, to be uh, 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 expedited so that their law wouldn't be violated given it was the Sabbath and a very important Sabbath because it's Passover. So what they would do oftentimes, they'd go to criminals with like a large mallet, kind of this big hammer, and they would break the legs of the people making death happen more quickly. So when you look at verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs since they saw he was already dead. So clearly Jesus died quickly. We don't know why. There's lots of theories people have as to why he might have died so quickly because several folks would be kind of lasting on the cross for a really long time, but he was. He was already dead. We don't have to get through the theories as to why. He was dead, and the Roman soldiers could clearly see that he was dead. And then when you see what they do next, verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. Now, this is uh, a, big, a big question, right? People have wondered, why is this significant? lots of theories as to what it means for water and blood to come out. Uh, there's lots of symbolism that's there as well. Uh, we don't know. People have lots of theories. There's lots of folks who have tried to make medical arguments, and then there are folks in the medical community that are like, no, not exactly. We don't know exactly what this means. Could it be that uh, whatever came out, uh, maybe he was on the cross just long enough where he had died, he had been dead long enough for uh, the plasma to separate from some of the platelets, and so some of the liquid portion comes out, and then the thicker portion comes out? We don't know for sure. We do know that when John uses words like blood and water, there's heavy symbolism. There are things that those, that those words signify. And so we should actually try to figure out exactly what, what that could uh, be pointing to as well, right? The blood and water flowing from Jesus' side, um, what it proved is that his death was certain. And while we don't know exactly what all these things mean, what we do know is that Jesus, it can't be denied that, that water and blood uh, prove that Jesus indeed died here. The Romans could tell because of what came out that he was truly dead. These professional executioners, they were sure of it. So John is giving us this, not for us to just pontificate off of all the different symbolism that it could be. There's place for that. But he's bringing this up to say, in case you were curious or wondering, Jesus really was dead. So those are witnesses. Then John points to himself as a witness. Verse 35, he who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth. So who is John referring to here? Well, we know that we've talked about this before. John has consistently used this kind of almost like not direct language to refer to himself. Many times he's saying, and the one that Jesus loved was there. Later, we're going to hear about uh, John pointing to himself. And, and sometimes people have kind of made the joke, and Jen has pointed out that, that, uh, that sometimes he al he's almost kind of, uh, kind of big up in himself. And so he'll kind of make these passing references to like, hey, that was the one Jesus loved. Hey, that one was faster at running. Hey, that one was... John does that. And I guess if you're the author, you have that privilege. You can do that. So John does that here, right? It's, it's pretty consistent in the way he refers to himself in this gospel. And, and so he, he mentions himself numerous times, never by name, but by saying, 
the disciple that Jesus loved. Hey, the disciple that Jesus loved was there. The disciple that Jesus loved was uh, witnessing there. One of Jesus' disciples was looking at this. He's talking about himself. So John is saying these Roman uh, executioners can tell you that Jesus died. I can tell you Jesus died, but don't just take their word or my word. The scriptures also prophesied and foretold that this would happen. Verses 36 and 37. For these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says, they will look at the one that they pierced. These verses that we see uh, that, that the scriptures are, are referring to or that John is referring to, he's basically saying, all of these things that prophesied who the Messiah would be and how the Messiah would die, they have been fulfilled here. He's wanting, remember, he said this from the beginning, I'm writing these things so that you will believe that Christ is the Messiah, so that you will believe that Christ came as our Savior. Everything he gives us is to convince us that he truly is our Savior. And so in proving that he died, that's a part of it. Hey, our prophecy said that the Savior would die in this way. Our prophecy said that the Messiah would not have his bones broken. And so he starts to uh, appeal to a couple of verses that we see in the Old Testament. He notes specifically, why, why does he have to focus so much on the fact that the soldiers didn't break his legs? Because he wants us to look back to Psalm 3420, where he says he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. That's one of those prophetic uh, psalms, that messianic psalms that's pointing out who, what the Messiah will look like and how the Messiah, how, uh, what will happen to his body uh, when he comes on the scene, when he's actually being put to death. Then uh, there's other language that's used here too, right? Because it's not just um, keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. There's also Passover language here. If you recall in Numbers 9, uh, you see uh, language used to describe what the Passover lamb, how the Passover lamb would be prepared. And it says, they leave none of it until morning, nor break any of its bones. According to the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. Again, either way, whether you look at the Messianic verse there about what the Messiah will be like or the Passover verse there, Jesus is being presented to us as this Messianic Passover lamb, this Passover lamb to do away with all other Passover lambs, this sacrifice to do away with all other sacrifices. And, and so to prove that he is the Passover lamb, John is saying, by the way, his bones weren't broken the same way that Passover lamb's bones weren't, weren't to be broken. And he doesn't just end there. Then he brings up the fact that they looked on him uh, who, after they pierced him. Where's that coming from? Another prophecy pointing out what the, the state, the, the nature of the Messiah's body when he's put to death. Zechariah 12, they will look on him whom they have pierced. What, what John is showing us is not only do we have proof that Jesus died from these Roman executioners, not only do you have proof because John is saying, because I saw it, but we should already be able to hearken back to the scriptures that prophesied that this indeed would be the case when our Messiah came on the scene. So here's something that we've got to think through. When you think about Jesus's death, when you think about Jesus dying of the, on the cross, here's the main idea there. His death on the cross was not him failing his mission. His death on the cross was him accomplishing his mission. The verses that prophesied this said, this has to happen. This is how it will happen. So when Jesus died, in many ways, he was not a victim. He was the victor. 
He accomplished the very thing that was necessary in order for us to be able to triumph over death, sin, and the grave. So in many ways, we oftentimes will look at Jesus and we'll see, yes, in some sense, he was a victim, but we don't see him as rising and being victorious over something. He accomplished his mission. He never failed. He wasn't put to death. He was submissive to the point of death. So the death of Jesus Christ was not man's idea in many ways. It was God's. His death was the fulfillment of these scriptures written long ago. And John sets these Old Testament scriptures before us so that they will testify to the necessity of the death of Christ. It's so necessary we see this, and I'll show you in a minute why. But the one thing we can know for sure is that there is his, we see this for sure historically. Other people have even written about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus truly happened, and it was necessary. And then we have a few other witnesses here. We have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, verses 38 through 42. You notice here that they are there and they're testifying. They are able to testify to the death of Christ. Now, what do we know about these two men? few things. First, they both were very powerful, very well-educated, very well-connected members of this incredibly powerful Jewish court known as the Sanhedrin. So they're already kind of like senators in our world, right? They have incredible uh, uh, opportunity, uh, incredible privilege. So much so, we know this because when Joseph, uh, for, uh, Joseph, uh, I think in Mark 14, they refer to Joseph as actually being courageous by going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus. Why was that courageous? Well, he was a, a major Jewish leader. For him to go to the Roman government, right? Jesus has already been postured as this kind of rebel against Roman authorities. The Jews kind of tried to make, it, make him look that way. So for Joseph to go to, the, to Pilate and say, hey, can I get Jesus's body? That would have left him very vulnerable. Also, him actually wanting Jesus's body in, in the face of the Jewish leaders around him would have looked at him as, as a turncoat. So there's no question that Joseph had to be incredibly brave and courageous just to put himself out there. But also Nicodemus. You might remember Nicodemus. Several months ago, we walked through his story in John chapter 3, and we said we'd come back to him. John, or John brings up Nicodemus' story here. He closes the loop on whatever happened to Nicodemus. If you remember, Nicodemus was this very, again, well-connected Jewish leader, but he meets Jesus under the cover of night. He meets Jesus secret. We're talking about these two guys. These are the secret disciples of Jesus. Nicodemus comes on the scene quietly, asking Jesus questions, trying to figure out what's, what the deal is, but he doesn't really want to publicly be seen with Jesus back then. But now he has no problem identifying with Jesus in his death. Sometimes, and this shows us the varying uh, uh, phases that we go through in our life, in our, in our faith walk for sure. Sometimes there's a phase where it's like, I have no problem. We see certain people in the text who have no problem identifying with Jesus in his life when it wasn't cool to do so. And largely they were the women, which there's a lot to be said for that. Because the women who are consistent from front to back, from the beginning of the story to the end of the story, have shown themselves to be faithful. And so you've got certain people, may we all be like women in the Bible, is what I would actually say. May we all have the kind of faith that we see women have in the Bible where they just see, they see Jesus, they follow him, doesn't matter what's coming their way. Many of the men didn't do that out of the gate. 
And this isn't to just go men versus women because the goal is we all are different phases here. Some of us are the women at times, some of us are the men at times. But the goal here is at some point, yes, I want to be able to identify with Jesus in his life. But what really sets these folks, all of them apart, is who's willing to identify with Jesus in his death. There's no more secrecy, uh, there's no more secrets in this way. There's no more clandestine operating in this way. There's no like surreptitious posturing in this way. You either are with him or you are not. And at some point, Nicodemus finally gets to this place where he goes, I don't want to be in the shadows anymore. I want to identify with Jesus in his death. And this is what made them very powerful witnesses, especially to the non-believing Jews who may have called into question the uh, the authenticity of Jesus' death and eventually his resurrection. Here's what we need to know here. These men, much like the women, these men had nothing to gain. They had everything to lose. And after investigating Jesus' claims, they finally believed him. They risked a lot, using the power of their position to go to Pilate, request the body of Jesus, give him a proper burial when no one else would. So when you, so, so when you think through all of the witnesses that we see, one thing we can be certain of, Jesus truly died. The Roman soldiers will tell you, John will tell you, the scriptures will tell you, Joseph and Nicodemus will tell you. So we've established that. So what? Why does it matter? Why should it matter to you that Jesus died? Why is John focusing and why is he so concerned about demonstrating that to us? Well, one of the easiest answers is it sets up the narrative pretty well about focusing on what the resurrection should mean to us, right? You cannot have a true resurrection without a true death. You have to establish death before you ever get to real resurrection. That's actually true in a very real way in our own lives. If we were to just uh, apply life cycles and the death of things and, and rebirth and remaking of things in our life, you really can't actually bring real change in your own life until you acknowledge the things that need to die. You can't bring real growth into your life until you acknowledge the things that are inhibiting growth, those things that need to die. You can't move on to a new situation until the old situation has effectively died. There is no new life without death first. And so you can't get to resurrection if you don't focus on the death, if you don't establish the death. And there's even more to, to it than even that. If John was just interested in setting the stage for the resurrection, he could have just said, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit and left it at that. But he belabors the point. He wants to persuade us that Jesus really did die. Now, there, there's one big reason why I think this happened. And you almost have to look back historically at what was going on during the time that this, uh, during the time of Jesus and during the time that this was uh, written. And it wasn't fully uh, created then, but it was already beginning. There was a major heresy, a false teaching about Christ that had begun to, to gain popularity. It's known as docetism. And docetism, it wasn't fully mature when John wrote this gospel, but, but the seeds had already started and there were early forms of it in its infancy stages. Now, here's what, the, here's what happened. These docetists, they believed that Jesus was divine. They believed he was God, but they refused to believe that he was truly human. That word uh, docetist, it comes from this Greek word that means to seem. So they would say, um, if you were to just summarize their view, they would say, they believe Jesus only seemed to be human, but he really wasn't truly human. 
He really was truly just kind of a God among us. And all they could see is the divine nature, but nothing about his physical body really mattered. They were like, eh, he seemed like physical. He just did that for us. He just had this kind of mirage to look human in front of us, but he wasn't really human. So what is John? You know that John addresses this. He even addresses this in 1 John later. In 1 John 4, he writes, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. You hear that? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is is in the world already. This is very specific. John is dealing with a major false teaching about Jesus. People are not believing that he physically was even a person. And he realizes if you don't believe he was a person, then you won't believe in his death, which means the resurrection will not mean what it should to you, which means your hope won't really be in true resurrection because your hope hasn't been born out of a mourning over real death. So you look at uh, the way that Jesus describes the crucifixion here in John 19. When Jesus, if you, if you really think about it, when Jesus was on the cross, right? Why does John include Jesus' mentioning uh, uh, and concern over his earthly mother, the woman who gave birth to him? That's physical. Why does he mention that Jesus was thirsty? That's physical. When he died and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit, he did it the way a human would when they die. When they thrust the spear into his side, he bled like a human does. Yeah, Jesus was God. And Jesus was man. Divine and human. United together in one person. That's why when we began this text, what did it say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. So here's the most important reason for the emphasis, the way John emphasizes the death of Christ. And we've used this verse as one of my favorite verses, usually when, specifically when we have people that we love that, 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 that pass away, that die, and how we actually find some real sense of hope. We've, we've uh, quoted this many times, 1 Corinthians 15. If, if he did not die and he's not resurrected, our faith is useless. See, if the resurrection, he says, if the resurrection isn't true, our faith doesn't mean anything at all. Well, you can't get to resurrection if there's not real death. So you could extrapolate that and say, if he did not die, our faith is useless. If Jesus doesn't truly die, then he never truly resurrects, which means we have no hope of resurrection from the dead. So here, he has to first truly die if he is to truly rise. Now, we've said this before, but why would our faith be vain or empty or useless if Jesus Christ didn't die and raise from the dead on the third day? This is where the Christian faith is very different. This is where we've got to really nail down what we truly believe. Aside from everything else that, that arrests our uh, uh, focus, that arrests our concerns, arrests our hearts, there's lots of things that are happening, lots of things that we can focus on. But this is one of the most important things here. Christianity, our faith, is not about ethical teaching. 
Christianity is not about morality. It is not about showing you how to be happier, how to have a more satisfying life, how to walk in your purpose. None of that is what Christianity is focused on primarily. If it were, or anything like that, then why even would Christ need to die? If the number one goal of Christianity is to make you be happier, then why wouldn't Jesus have just lived a life just continually making people happy? He did that. You go to a wedding party and you get the wine going, you keep the party going, people are happy. You got somebody that's deaf and now they can hear, you keep them happy. Somebody is blind, now they see, you keep them happy. Somebody is lame and now they walk, you keep them happy. Why wouldn't Jesus have just done that? Why would that not have been the the, the totality of his ministry? Because that's not what he primarily came to do. He primarily came to do something far greater. Primarily came to do something in many ways to put to death, death itself. To do away with what brings death, sin itself. So it's not enough for him to just heal a malady in your body. Because all that would be is a band-aid for a gunfight. He realizes, he knows that we need something far more than just temporary help-me-outs temporary handouts, temporary ways to just kind of anesthetize yourself against the pain of this world. He came to do away with the pain itself. So why does John go to these great lengths to demonstrate the death of Jesus to us? If the faith, if our faith was fundamentally and foundationally based on our ethics or on our morality, or showing us how to be happier and more fulfilled, there would be no reason for Jesus to die. All he'd ever have to do is teach. That's the best we can get from anybody. That's the best you can get from me. That's the best we can get from some of the greatest leaders, greatest orators, greatest teachers, greatest examples in our life. The best they can do is teach. And then they die. And they stay dead. There's nothing else they can do for you. There's nothing else they can do for me. We need something that transcends all of that. If that were the case, if that's all we needed, then Jesus would have just been another one of these really, really great teachers, which is what some uh, came to view Jesus as. All he would need to do is just give us some great examples, give us some great stories, give us some great uh, parables. But it's the main question that gets answered by our faith in this. What, What would Jesus do when we think through Uh, how to meet our greatest need. What did Jesus do in order to meet our greatest need? He didn't just live and teach and serve as our example. Otherwise, what John is telling us is that his death would be unnecessary. It's deeper than this. His death and his resurrection were extremely necessary. Jesus didn't come to just teach. Jesus didn't just come to heal. Jesus didn't just come to make you happy. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. Why? So that through death, he might put death to death. That's why he came. That's the central thing to understand. That's the central thing John wants us to grasp. Death has power. Death is an enemy. Death has dominion over us because of sin. And so it's death that Christ came to conquer. 
by his death, and by his resurrection. In order for us to understand the gospel, we have to understand. It's vital that we understand the law. It's vital that we understand. It's not enough. If we say to somebody, Jesus died for sins, repent, believe on him for your salvation, the reason why it sounds so absurd is because we don't really explain who Jesus was and why he had to die and, and what he, in fact, saves us from. If it doesn't make sense, Jesus' death doesn't make sense if he came to save me from feeling bad about myself. Jesus' death doesn't make sense if he came to save me from, from fine, if he came to heal me from wounds that I have from people who've really harmed me. Those things matter, but that's not the primary reason why he came. Those are additional things that come along with what it means to walk in Jesus and walk in reconciliation and walk with other believers and all of that. But the primary reason why he came is to come and undo the state of our heart, to come and undo the state of this world. What was mankind's state? The misery of mankind's state after the fall is that we have lost communion with God. You don't believe it? Look at how much uh, we have completely lost communion with each other. Look at how we are prone to treat each other. Look at how we are prone to view each other. Look at how we are prone to exploit each other. We are under wrath. We are under this curse. And because we are under this curse, because we have this brokenness with us, we are liable for all the miseries of this life. Any of these things can befall us. Some things we bring on ourselves, some things we don't. Because the world has now been not just been affected by sin, it's been infected by sin. We are walking. Here we are in the midst of a coronavirus. We're in the midst of this pandemic, and we're so concerned about being, we are, we all are, we're taking great precautions. We don't want to be infected. We don't want to be affected because we know what that infection might do, not just to us, but to the people around us. Y'all, that is what sin does. Sin goes far deeper than just our emotions. The very essence of who we are is broken if Jesus doesn't die and resurrect. This is our condition. This is why Jesus died. He died to reverse the curse for everyone who calls on his name. This is what we mean when we quote Romans, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus died. It matters. We have no hope. We have no faith without it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. I thank you so much for the ways in which you continue to show your, yourself to us. All the ways that we are prone to overlook aspects of who you are. Sometimes for our own selfish reasons, God, I, I am uh, not exempt. I am so prone to wanting just to focus on the things that can make us feel better, the things that can make us feel good, the things that can uh, give us hope. And while none of those things are bad things, I pray that we would remember the ultimate reason why you came, why you lived, and why you died. Lord, it's our sin and our sinful state and our sinful nature that put you there. And it's your willingness to submit to the will of the Father. It's your willingness to submit and give your life. On some levels, we might see your life as having been taken. But when we think about who you are, we know that your life was given as a ransom for many. 
God, I pray that we would see this as something that while it's hard to live in, hard to live in that truth, that we would derive a sense of great joy and hope. Because if you didn't die, then there's no way you could have risen. And we would have no way to have a faith that can withstand every trial, every travail, every form of tribulation for your glory, because we know that you are coming to return and finish what you started and make everything new again. There is no newness without death. So Lord, as we mourn death and as we uh, uh, cry and our hearts are hurting because of death, even our own lives, Lord, I pray that we would, we would uh, find a sense of comfort But the only thing that would comfort us is something that's rooted in your resurrection and nothing else. God, may that be true of our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive the benediction of God together now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.